Hello and welcome to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the Career and Culture podcast. And if you are a forward thinking, people centric leader, then you're absolutely in the right place. Through a combination of interview based episodes as well as solo episodes, I share practical tips on creating happier working environments. When we are beating ourselves up on the inside or when we're beating ourselves up and we're saying, you're not good enough, you're gonna fail, what if you can't do it? What this does is it inflames the amygdala, which is the part of our brain that governs emotional reactivity. And what that does, it's called amygdala hijacking. It actually turns off, effectively turns off our prefrontal cortex. It stops it from operating. And that, and the prefrontal cortex is a part of the brain that governs rational thinking and logic. And so when we are just berating ourselves or, you know, admonishing ourselves on that, we're, what if we're not good enough or we're not good enough or we're terrible or, you know, why couldn't we try harder? We are literally preventing our brains from looking at the situation objectively and determining how we could improve. Whether you are looking to strategically and more proactively manage your career or create a more positive work culture in your organization, this is definitely the podcast for you. Jordana, you're so welcome to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm so delighted to have you as my guest. I know we've spoken a couple of times at this stage and there's no shutting us up. (laughs) Once we get started, we're having a really great chat. All really interesting stuff, all really related to creating happier working environments. Do you want to let listeners know a little bit about your background and how you got to doing what you're doing today? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here and continuing, continuing our conversation. So, oh, how did I get to be doing what I'm doing today? Well, basically I am doing what I'm doing now because I desperately wish that someone would have done this for me and told me about all of this back when I was, honestly, it would have been helpful early in college, I think, but When I was in college and law school and starting out in my career, I think the best description for me could be just a raging overachiever who, you know, I was, I went straight through from Yale College to Yale Law School, wore my perfectionism as a badge of honor. I was just really committed to doing all of the shiny successful things that I thought that I should be doing. And I was actually really good at doing doing those things and kind of accomplishing the goals and collecting the gold stars that I thought that I wanted. And so that was what I did for a number of years. And it was eventually on that path that I hit a sort of breaking point where I had achieved, you know, top grades at Yale College and Yale Law School, prestigious federal judicial clerkships, big law job offer, all of the things that I thought that I wanted. And I was, felt like I was dying on the inside. And I really just hit this intense burnout. But also, even before I burned out, just kind of this experience of disenchantment and demoralization in everything that I was working so hard to achieve, I was getting it and none of it was actually making me happy. And looking around, I saw in the legal profession that 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 wasn't unique to me. Mm. And I was like, what is going on? No one even seems to think that they should be or could be happy in their work. And so at that point, I it sounds ridiculous, but it's actually true. This is a number of years ago. It was a last gasp Google search on how to be happy that led me to discover positive psychology in the first place, which is the science of human flourishing. It's what I now teach and really revolve my coaching practice around. And I ended up taking a course on this because I just really wanted to know how to be happy. And what I, everything I learned in that positive psychology course completely blew my mind and was the complete opposite of everything that I believed about how to be happy and how to be successful. And so after going through that, a light bulb went off in my head. I, you know, the, the overachiever, the perfectionist student, I ended up pursuing my certification in positive psychology. I wanted to learn more. And I decided that really all high achieving professionals need to know this and none of them do. And so it was at that point that I 
decided to step out of law practice and really devote my career to making this information more accessible to other students and other professionals in law and other super cutthroat intense industries so that they could not only avoid burning out and fleeing their careers like I did, but actually figure out how to build sustainable, satisfying, and really successful careers that they love as opposed to are just surviving on a daily basis. Yeah. I think everything that you've said there, Jordana, is relatable, especially to me. I can absolutely relate to everything that you're saying, but I'd love to take a little step back for a second and get an understanding of why like where did that inner drive actually come from so you had this inner drive that got you to a stage where you were just kind of looking around then you reached everything that you wanted and you're looking around going I this doesn't feel like I thought it would feel why do I feel like this and how can I actually be happy but where did that inner drive come from to keep kind of going and to to pursue those outward marks of success yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. And it's something that I wondered about for a long time until I actually went back and kind of connected the dots through history, working with a therapist um, and a coach. And I realized that because when I was younger, when I was a little kid, I was like this free creative spirit. I wanted to be an actress and a performer and to work at SeaWorld part-time. And I was like constantly doing all of these creative imaginative things and fast forward 20 years and could not be a more different person. Like I had no ounce of fun or play or creativity at all. And I had just gone to this totally polar opposite extreme. And there was, I even remember when I was in first starting out, very first starting out in high school, I got a few grades on a, a geometry test and my parents were like, oh, you know, maybe you need some like a learning tutor or like a learning coach or something to help you because you're not really focused enough on your classes. And so very different than who I became. Um, and what happened in that freshman year of high school was that basically my father got really, really sick and it was really, really scary and completely outside of my control. Again, I didn't realize this at the time, but looking back, I see it was almost like you said, like there was a, a switch flipped. And after that, I never got anything less than an A basically on a test ever again. I just became so intense about studying. And what I realized was that when I really focused in, if as long as I worked hard enough and was diligent enough, which I just became super willing to do, I could almost make my grades perfect and I could bring home those perfect grades. And I think I felt like, oh, well, this will make my parents happy. And like, this is something that I can control. And this is like, this is how I can be the good daughter. This is how I can be the good girl. Fast forward to college. I didn't think at that point, you know, having been valedictorian in my high school, I didn't think I could get more intense. Hmm. Then I had a horrible breakup, the beginning of my second year of college. And again, it felt like things were spiraling out of control and I was feeling bad about myself in this case in particular. I actually doubled down again and became even more intense about my studying and my drive at that point. And so looking back in time, I'm seeing things that I couldn't control coupled with me feeling bad about myself. And I think that I just identified at some point the way that the only thing that I can control and the only way that I can really prove my worth and my value and show up as this good girl that people love and they appreciate, um, feel is worthy in the world is by perfecting my work. Like that was the only thing that as long as if I tried hard enough, I could perfect. And so my whole identity came to revolve around that. And the the problematic thing was that in order to perfect my grades, which became increasingly hard once I went from college to law school, where the the learning curve is just so much higher, mm. I I basically it squeezed out the room for anything else, and therefore there were no there was nothing else there was no other aspect of my identity at that point. So it got to the point where I was like, well, if I don't graduate with literally perfect grades from Yale Law School, 
then what do I have to show for myself? Like that is who I am at this point. Um, and so everything became so bound up in that, that the stakes felt so high. And I think that was really how I got to that breaking point that I did relatively early. I feel like a lot of people get farther into their careers before they completely burn out. And I was pretty young, but I think it's because I was just so intense. Yeah, I think there's some super interesting insights there. It's the when things are outside of your control, finding something that you can control, realizing then that you're rewarded for it because the teachers will praise you, the lecturers, your parents, all of this outward praise then is reinforcing of this type of behavior. But it's fantastic that you have those insights. And I hope that for anyone who's listening today that has experienced that, that they can maybe recognize that in themselves. If they haven't done that work yet, maybe take this as an opportunity to at least start a conversation with someone, be that a coach or a therapist to work through some of that perfectionism stuff. Yeah, and I I just wanna, oh, sorry. No, I just wanna point out there because I think if anyone is listening and this that resonates with them the important like I feel like the the final and really the most important realization at the end of all this is that it makes sense when this starts when this perfectionism and this overachieving takes root as a way of trying to gain and maintain control but then what happens is that it becomes so deep-seated that then you ultimately lose all control because then then this perfectionism, which is really just like this intense fear-based motivation, it becomes all-consuming and we ultimately become slaves to it. And that's where we see like continuing to push forward and trying to do more and achieve more, even when we are so clearly breaking down or trying to like beat and blame and shame ourselves into performing um and to the point that it becomes becomes so detrimental for our health for our well-being but also our performance and we could talk more about how that how that ends up happening and so then we lose control but the problem is because our we're so culturally conditioned to believe that working more is always better that we can't see that actually we are have lost control and we're now like we're no longer making a decision that says i want to do this thing because it's in my best interest we are saying i need to keep working i need to keep pushing i need to keep doing this i need to overextend even more in order to try to take the edge off this completely all-consuming anxiety that i have anyways but the problem is that that just ends up compounding the pain and the anxiety and so it's like start as many things you know it starts as this protective thing when it serves us at one point but then it really spirals out of control and so it's just super ironic that our way of getting the control ends up then you know flipping and that's how we lose our control yeah so it sounds like you created this entire identity for yourself that you couldn't then get away from so you've created this identity around high achievement high performance and perfectionism that if you suddenly were to take the foot off the pedal to some degree that your identity is then lost or you have this fear or anxiety around not performing and then who are you if you're not the high performer would that be kind of fair to say yeah completely and there's this there's this thought, well, like I'm exhausted, but I can't, but I can't stop because then I'll be nothing and, you know, I'll lose all willpower. And of course it doesn't, it doesn't work that way at all, but it, it feels that way. And when you get so used to always giving 150%, you, you can never prove to yourself that you could actually approach it in a different way and get the same, if not better results, because you've never let yourself even try it. I mean, it's so interesting because I feel like we always associate perfectionism with better, more is better. But once you're trying, whenever you're trying to do higher level work where you actually need some creativity and like space for really, you know, deeper problem solving or generating new ideas or building relationships in any way. So not just like grinding out work, then 
all of a sudden, like if you are spread too thin or if you're not giving yourself any time to rejuvenate or process or investing in any of the aspects of well-being, relationships, meaning, purpose, engagement, physical health that have actually scientifically been shown to enhance cognitive functioning, problem solving, creativity, like you can't possibly be doing your best work, but you, even if you understand that at a rational level, you can't take your foot off the gas because, because of this internal compulsion mm. to just keep doing and achieving for fear of what might happen if you just let yourself pause for even yeah. a minute. Yeah. We'll, we'll come on to some of the solutions around this in a second, but I'd love to understand a bit more about the day-to-day -day experience that you had when you yeah. were in that situation. What was going on for you, uh, you know, from an activity perspective, from a mental perspective, from a yeah. relationship perspective? I'd love to understand what the re daily reality was for you. Oh my goodness. Well, from an activity perspective, there was just a lot of pushing and work and pretty much nothing else. Um, I would, I mean, I used to work 12, 14 hour days, constantly being, doing something that was deemed productive. And of course, you know, it, there were so many instances and hours where it really wasn't all that productive because I was so drained. And rather than letting myself take a break or do something restorative, I would just keep pushing forward. Um, and so that was really what my days consumed. How did I feel on the inside? I was, Eva, I am not lying when I would say I was so lonely, it physically hurt. Oh my gosh, all, and just going backwards here, all my number one value, which I did not figure out until you know, this was around the right before the positive psychology or the Google search, how to be happy Google search. Finally, I did a values discovery exercise where I actually identified what my core values are, um, a question that I literally never asked myself in my life before. And I identified what my core values are, top ones, love, connection, authenticity. And I realized that everything I was doing was not only not furthering those values, but was actually completely contrary to them because the work that I was pursuing didn't really evoke feelings of love and connection. I was on the path to becoming a criminal prosecutor. So, you know, you figure, rid <laughs> riddle opposite. me that, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but also I had completely blocked out any possibility of having a personal life because I was working all the time. I could, wouldn't let myself create the space for that. But what I've always wanted more than anything is to feel loved and valued and there is nothing that is more important to me than my interpersonal relationships um and so i was i feel like i was working so hard to try to feel worthy and good enough so someone could love me so someone could make me feel cared for and yet i wasn't talking to anyone outside of the people I was working with. And then even once there was this, so this is, you know, I'll give you the spark notes of this because it's a long story, but there was this magical period in between when I took the bar exam and when I started my first judicial clerkship, I had these three months off and I knew that I was starting this super prestigious clerkship also, by the way, where I was going to be expected to work from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., five days a week, eight to eight Saturdays and Sundays. Like basically I was going underground for a year. So I knew that I had that lined up. So I had this like magical three month period where nothing was expected of me. There was no work. And I met my then husband during that period. And I remember I was like, okay, I've got three months to make this, this guy fall in love with me before I go underground for the next two years. And I did, we started dating. And then I kept him, but I hadn't addressed any of this stuff yet. So I had this like excellent three month free, free period. And then it went back to normal life. And I mean, he is just the world's most patient man. Thank goodness, because he stuck around. But I, I, let, I, I made no space for that relationship basically that year because I couldn't at that point. Like I physically couldn't bring myself to do it, to push back against the work or the, what, the way that I thought that I had to approach the work. And 
it was just so ironic because all I wanted was to feel loved and valued. And there was just this compulsion that the way to make that happen would be working more in a, which had the direct result of me not creating sp any space for the relationships, but also wearing myself down so much that when I was with other people, I was like this shadow version of myself um, because I had no energy and I was so depleted. And so it was just so, so ironic. Um, and then also just to kind of complete the picture of what things looked like, I, my physical health was disastrous during that time. So ulcers, chronic pain, unexplained right. chronic pain for the longest time that I went to all sorts of traditional doctors, couldn't figure it out. And it was ultimately when I started doing mind body medicine and really doing some coaching strategies around the anxiety and the perfectionism and that the pain started to reduce. And it's wild. There's actually such close links between perfectionism and not only anxiety, depression, eating disorders, things that people know about, but also chronic pain. And it's so interesting how these like self-critical, self-judging, self-doubting thoughts not only take a toll on our mental health and on our sleep, but also on our physical health as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, everything that you're saying is kind of alarm bells for me. And I hope that if there's anyone listening today, that they can really take a lot from your experience. And um, before we move on, I know we said we'd talk about solutions, but I'd love to yeah. get your thoughts on industry. So I know you come from the legal background. My perception as an outsider, having never worked in that area, is very cutthroat. And I know in previous conversation, we talked about suits and you're like, it's nothing like suits. <laughs> it kind of, you know, there's all maybe the bad parts associated with yeah. it. But but what other like to me, it's kind of it screams professional services where you're dealing with very sort of high stakes, high end type of clients. Uh, it could be the big accountancy firms. I'm thinking investment banking um, consultancy firms, things like that. Any any thoughts on on where this tends to show up? Yeah, generally. Yeah. And I think that you're you're right. So, I mean, the law, it it, it is it is cutthroat. And I think that but so are, so is business, so is finance, so is consulting. And I think that, so is medicine. And I think that any of these super intense, high stakes, demanding industries, they really glorify perfectionism. So not that they glorify it, they reward it. And they say like these, and so when you ask someone like, what makes you, what does it mean to be a perfectionist? What most people will say is like, oh, well being, super driven, super type A, like commitment to excellence, meticulous attention to detail. And all of these things are demanded um, and rewarded in these industries. What they don't say is this, what I actually believe is the root of all perfectionism, which is this deep seated fear of not being good enough and not being worthy and responding to that and trying to drive yourself forward through self-criticism and self-flagellation and self-doubt. And the problem is, is that these industries, they like perfectionism can work really well for people for a time until they burn themselves out or until they wanna rise into higher level positions because for the reasons that we explained earlier, perfectionism can make you a really good worker bee, but it prevents you from doing that higher level work. But so many of these industries kind of work on a burn and churn model, especially the legal profession, where they'll take associates, most associates leave between three and five years because they're completely burned out, and then they bring in new associates and they do the whole thing again. And so it's really not um, a good model for business or for the well-being of their employees. And so I think one of the issues though that really perpetuates these things is the lack of humanity within these organizations and so of course anyone who's gotten to the top they've made a thousand mistakes in their careers because humans make mistakes and for good reason making mistakes it's inevitable and it's also how we learn and grow and actually develop our capabilities but rather than talking about that and inculcating a growth mindset culture and a culture where people feel able to 
admit their mistakes so that they can receive guidance and support on how to move forward or on how to rectify the mistake, that is really where if when people, we need that psychological safety to be able to acknowledge our invulnerability in the workplace because doing that actually enables us to make ourselves stronger and better. And I think that that is just so lacking in so many industries where there's kind of this myth that everyone needs to be these like perfect invulnerable robots that never make mistakes, never feel stressed, never feel sad, and just keep churning and churning and churning. And that just ignores, one, it ignores like all of the pains that people go through that if we recognize them and normalize them, it will take away from these feelings of unworthiness and imposter syndrome that really feed perfectionism. But also it can open us up to fueling all of these other positive sources of motivation. And so going back to what I said about perfectionism, it's really driven by, you know, we try to use self-criticism and self-judgment and fear to make ourselves work hard enough. So it's, it's like, it's almost like perfectionists, I say, are never playing to win. They're playing not to lose. So we're working, working, working so that we don't fail or disappoint others. So it's not like we're working, working, working to accomplish something good that will then make us feel great. We're working, working, working so that we don't feel bad. That is not a good, high quality source of motivation. Like behavioral science will show you that that is not how to get the best out of people. What is, is show them how they can play to win by tapping into their values, giving them a sense of meaning and purpose, making them feel like they belong and are part of a team that's invested in them and cares about them. That's how you can feel better performance. And that I feel like is so lacking in so many of these industries. Yeah. Do you, do you see things starting to change even at, you know, very slowly or very you know, small little pockets, but do you see things starting to change at least? Yes, absolutely. And in the legal industry and and more broadly, so in the legal industry, really finally in like around 2017, the legal industry started to pay attention. And unfortunately, it took a number of just really tragic suicides that were that were publicized in the media and the, the ABA at that point created a national task force on lawyer well-being that basically issued this report saying enough is enough. We need to pay attention to this and stakeholders at all levels need to be doing things to cultivate and attend to the well-being of their employees. And there was an ABA well-being pledge that was created and slowly, slowly, slowly organizations are starting to pay attention. I think because some of them care about the well-being of their employees, some. And also more research is coming out showing why this is actually really good for business and really important for organizations' bottom line. So investing in the well-being of your employees, it's not just important as a humanitarian matter, which it is, but also like this is how you're actually going to get the best out of your people. This is how they're going to stay longer and perform way better while they're there. And so increasingly you're start we're starting to see changes and of course you know like anything there's some organizations that are like really making excellent changes and some that are making really small changes and some that haven't made any yet but you're starting to see it change and another change that we're seeing and i know this because i'm still teaching my positive lawyering course um one course per semester at the law schools gen z and the current crop of employees coming out into the workforce, like they value this more and they want to go to organizations that care about these things and actually care about them and are demonstrating that they care about them in a meaningful way and they're voting with their feet. And so we're seeing more employees across industries saying, I want to go to a place that really cares about my well-being and is like putting its money in its where its mouth is. And then we're seeing organizations responding as well. And yes, the change is slow, but it's it's starting and it's increasing um, by the year, which is great. It's brilliant and it is good for business. And from everything that you've just said, reducing burnout at work and facilitating that more creative thinking by having space within your day to do that thinking, to, to build those relationships as well. We haven't talked really about 
solutions, you've floated a few ideas, but do you have a specific framework or specific kind of process or solutions that you talk about with your clients? Yeah, with my clients, I feel like there's two things that are really, really important starting points for starting to rein in this perfectionism that is their typical approach to work. And so one of them is values alignment. And so that's just identifying what your values actually are. And so I feel like for so many people, and this was certainly the case for me, they don't even know what their values are because they've never thought about anything except for like, how do I impress? How do I prove my value, my worth? And so that's where we get into like only playing not to lose how, cause you can't play to win unless you know what winning means. And so first I like identifying your value and saying like, what's really important to you and how can you connect what you're doing at work to those things? Or how can you just kind of increase your alignment with those values in your life so that you have a fuller sense of your identity so you don't feel like you need to be just like slaving away to prove your worth through this one thing. And also, you know, it can open your eyes to, oh, your number one value is connection. Well, to what extent are you connecting with your colleagues when you're locking yourself away, ignoring everybody because you don't have time to do anything but your work? Oh, that's low. And what about your personal connections outside of work? Okay, that's low. And create that dissonance for people. And then creating really even just like little micro steps. So like, how can you honor that value you know, one point more in your day tomorrow. And I always like to start with these micro steps, not like, oh, you need to throw out your job and start completely anew <laughs> because for most people that's neither practical nor desirable, but there's so many little things that we can make to better align our lives with our values. And then we, if we start building those intrinsic feelings of meaning and purpose and connection, we'll no longer feel so hollow and what we're doing with the perfectionist striving is we're trying to fill this hollow hole that we have in us with this extrinsic achievements that are never actually going to fill that hole so that's one thing the other thing which is i think actually the most powerful tool that anyone can use for both their well-being but also their performance and it sounds really counterintuitive is cultivating self-compassion. And this really goes to what I was saying earlier about fear and self-criticism and self-doubt fueling motivation for perfectionists. And so, so many of us have been really raised and culturized to believe that self-flagellation is the best way to motivate ourselves. But actually, it's amazing. There's so much research showing that this is actually the opposite of the case. And so Dr. Kristen Neff, who's a leading expert on self-compassion, has shown that our inner critics and beating ourselves up actually is really not conducive to motivation or performance because what it does is it just de it, it deflates our self-confidence and our energy and makes us so scared of making mistakes that we don't even put ourselves out there. And so we are more likely to just opt out of any challenges that would, would enable us to actually further develop our skills and increase our performance because we're just so obsessed with like looking good and looking like we're not making mistakes. And so if we beat ourselves up every time we make a mistake, we just will never try again, which will stifle our growth. But also when we are beating ourselves up on the inside or when we're beating ourselves up and we're saying, you're not good enough, you're gonna fail, what if you can't do it? What this does is it inflames the amygdala, which is the part of our brain that governs emotional reactivity. And what that does, it's called amygdala hijacking. It actually turns off, effectively turns off our prefrontal cortex. It stops it from operating. And that, and the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that governs rational thinking and logic. And so when we are just berating ourselves or, you know, admonishing ourselves on that, we're, what if we're not good enough or we're not good enough or we're terrible or, you know, why couldn't we try harder? We are literally preventing our brains from looking at the situation objectively and determining how we could improve, how we could move forward. And so what Kristen Neff has shown is that if we adopt a self-compassionate approach, 
if we acknowledge like, oh, I'm anxious or, oh, I'm disappointed or this is hard right now, anyone would be feeling this way in these circumstances. But how can I just be kind to myself in this instance? And what would I say to someone else, a dear friend who I, you know, support unconditionally if they were in my shoes? And how can I communicate that same kindness to myself? And what we think is that, oh, if we treat ourselves in this kind, compassionate way, it'll make us weak, lazy, and complacent. But what the science shows is it actually turbocharges our motivation. So Kristen Neff has shown in a whole variety of studies in all different contexts that people who respond to themselves in this compassionate way actually have demonstrate much higher motivation and much greater ability to perform and stick with and overcome challenges. And so just to give you two completely different examples, one is students who get a bad grade on a test and respond to themselves with self-compassion versus self-criticism are more likely to study harder and do better when they're given an opportunity to retake it than the ones who respond with self-criticism because the ones with self-criticism, they tell themselves, oh, I'm stupid, you know, I can't do this, it's pointless, but they're so emotionally drained and distracted that they just don't can't put themselves forward in the same way. Same exact thing in the realm of behavioral health people who treat themselves with self-compassion are much more likely to stick with exercise, healthy eating, smoking cessation regimens than people who try to motivate themselves with self-compassion. And if they have a setback, they're much more likely to get back on the bandwagon if they respond with self-compassion rather than if they respond with self-criticism. And so the science shows like it's the opposite of being complacent or lazy, it actually fuels our motivation and our performance. And so self-compassion, I think, is probably one of those things. I know for me, I was like, absolutely not. I'm not going to go anywhere near this because it's so fluffy and, you know, it's going to make me lose my edge. And I know that's the case for so many, especially people who consider themselves high achievers, especially in these intense industries. Oh my goodness, it is like the most potent superpower that anyone could cultivate for themselves. Oh, I love that. I think um, I want to bring up something. I'm not sure, Jordana, if we've talked about values before, but that's something that really came through from the research that I did. It yep. forms part, a crucial, critical part of the Happier at Work framework. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And interestingly, what you were saying, like that you didn't know what your values are. I think a lot of people don't know what their values are. I certainly didn't when I still worked in an organization. I knew what the company's values were, but I saw a huge disconnect between what the company said the values were and the behavior and the bureaucracy within the organization, a total mismatch. So if you're lying about this, then what else are you lying about? That's all I can kind of think of it as like the really, there wasn't a connection between what they spoke about and, and how things were done essentially not even how people behaved but how things were done and one strong example of that that i think of is the word simple formed you know that was one of the core values but it was the most bureaucratic organization i ever worked in and it took me about nine months i'd say to get up to speed with all of their systems and all of the relationships and all of that kind of thing so i think understanding what your values are and and how you described it as how can you play to win when you don't know what winning means and winning is getting to activate those values getting to live those values on a day-to-day basis rather than just kind of blindly keeping going where you're going so again maybe another practical thing for someone to do is to assess what their values are you mentioned that you took an assessment like did you take a a well-known assessment or how did you go about doing that? Yeah. So at that time, it was just my therapist literally gave me a list of values and, you know, she said, check off all the ones that resonate with you and then narrow it down to your top five and let's talk about it. I've, I've subsequently actually developed a values discovery guide that I use with my clients and my students to help them kind of work through this process of like, what are the values? What do they mean to you? Why are they important? To what extent are you honoring them? What are action steps that you could take to bring yourself in greater alignment? I think, and I know there is, so I have an assessment like that. I'm I'm sure you probably do too when you're happier at work. And I think I cannot emphasize enough how how valuable 
those are. Um, but it's so interesting that, I mean, for me, the, the fascinating, one thing that was fascinating was I did that and I identified the action. I was like, okay, I got the values. I see the action steps, but then there's actually doing them, right? And for me, I couldn't do them. And that was when I realized, oh, I've lost control. I've ceded control to this deeply ingrained perfectionist who now sees the writing on the wall, knows how wrong all of this is, and is yet still like doing all of these things that are contrary to her values, like mm -hmm. because she cannot stop. And that's where I think adding the self-compassion piece on because cultivating your unconditional self-worth, I think is the best antidote and of course you need other things too. You need boundaries. There's lots of other things that come in, but that's the place to start in terms of filling that hole of the fear so that you can then start taking those scary steps towards better honoring your values. Um, yeah. Also, just what you said about the organizations before, you make such a great point when you're trying to ascertain the values of an organization and whether they align with your own, don't just look at the organization's mission statement because what the organization says their values are <laughs> yes. may have little to nothing to do with what values it actually yeah. embodies. And, mm -hmm. you know, so you do your, do your homework, ask the right people, the right questions when, if someone is in the position of evaluating where they want to work rather than taking those things at face value is so important. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And yes, I do a values piece. And it, like I say, it forms a critical part of the happier work framework. Yeah. But part of that is looking at whether or not the organization me is living their values essentially yeah. so so they say one thing is that the behavior that is being seen with the employees you know yeah. what is the first-hand experience of people in that organization uh with a view to when you are joining an organization that you can realistically assess whether that's a good culture match for you you know they say one thing but is that the the lived experience of this um, I mean, we could probably talk all day about this whole concept around values. And I love this idea of self-compassion. It's yeah. something, again, that's quite new to me in the last few years. And I love how you're so honest and vulnerable about you try to do this stuff and you realize now you're suddenly losing control and maybe you won't get it right when you first start living in accordance with your values. And I think so many people are, we get kind of we go off track a little bit and we lose sight of what our values actually are. And that's why we're so miserable at work yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. So for me, you've, you've brought some really, really fantastic insights to that conversation and helping people to like maybe take an honest look and see, are you really happy doing what you're doing? Are you chasing and chasing to try and find fulfillment from the external rather than taking a look inward really understanding what those core values are and whether you're living in alignment and it's interesting you're saying about connection that's probably how we connected in the first place and you know from the get-go we've just had these amazing conversations like connection is really core part of who i am and i need to remember that especially when i'm working alone and i'm sure similar similar to yourself you don't have colleagues that you can connect with on a regular basis and um, so i think remembering those things is is really really important Anything else that you wanted to share, Jordana, before we wrap things up for today? Yeah, I, I'll just, on that point, I'll say, even if you're working in the best possible work environment, whose val that the, the organization's values are almost perfectly aligned with your own, there are so many external pressures that are constantly pulling us away from our values and towards these extrinsic things. And so I think I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I think it's so important to recognize like this isn't a one and done thing like oh i did the values thing i identified my values yeah, yeah. i made now changes <laughs> now i'm good i think that yeah. having a process of like writing those values down and then periodically like every couple months or even every month like or a couple times a year whatever it is checking in pausing because mm. i mean how often do we actually pause as opposed to never. just racing through our lives on autopilot <laughs> exactly never and reassessing yourself and being like, oh, actually I've been pulled away from this value. How can I get myself back? And not looking at 
that deviation and being pulled away as a sign that there's something wrong with you or that it's pointless and you shouldn't be doing this. I think I'm always, you know, and telling my clients, don't try to perfect your perfectionism recovery, recognize that, you know, there's ups and downs and we can, you know, three steps forwards, one step back, take the steps forwards, go back. Like we need to give ourselves that compassion and that grace and recognize that, you know, there it's it's inevitable that there's gonna that we're gonna get pulled away and that when things get stressful, when things get busy, you know, we're gonna revert to some of these evolutionary based protective defense mechanisms that aren't actually serving us. That's human. That's what it means to be human. And that's okay. We can't necessarily control that entirely, but what we can control is how will we respond when it happens. And so, you know, if you notice oh, I had made all this progress and now I see I've been, you know, pulled away from my values. Take a hint from Kristen Neff, treat yourself with some self-compassion there. Oh, how human of me. And then (laughs) what's one positive step that I can take in that direction? And I think it's this kind of continuous process of assessing and then just letting yourself recalibrate gently is really the way to make sustainable change over time. Yeah, no, amazing. And one of the things that occurred to me as you were talking about that idea of the self-flagellation versus the self-compassion is this idea of the fixed versus the growth mindset. So I think Mm -hmm. maybe if you're stuck in this fixed mindset, and I'm also very aware that, you know, this is not from the original author of of the mindset of Carol Dweck, but it's more for me, what I've noticed in my life is I can be fixed in some specific areas and growth mindset in other areas Mm -hmm. but when we get things wrong and we we kind of criticize ourselves then that's the fixed mindset coming out whereas if you try and be aware of that notice it and then shift the thinking to okay what is one positive step that I can take and then you're looking at the learnings that you can take from that, giving yourself some self-compassion and taking a positive step forwards. And like you said earlier, Jordana, like, you know, skyrocketing or putting a kind of a rocket in it to really grow that motivation and and help you to. And again, I don't want to be going back to this. Oh, my God. And then you're hugely successful, but it's more you're able to come back to your values and what's yeah. really, really important to you rather than focusing on those external cues always yeah absolutely the question i ask everyone who comes on the podcast what does being happier at work mean to you oh i love this question and i would say that being happier at work i think it really involves i mean just going back to what we were talking about earlier being in a job where you feel like you are fueled by intrinsic motivation. So you're energized, you're playing to win. You're working because you obtain this gratification from a job well done on whatever it's doing. You enjoy the work itself or you enjoy the people that you're doing it with. You feel connected, you feel stimulated, you feel engaged. Not playing not to lose. So not a work where you are being driven by pressure, fear of not being good enough or just chasing, you know, doing something just for the sake of monetary compensation. That's a really hollow source of motivation. And so, yeah, I would say a job where you feel invigorated and energized and like you when you when you work each day, you're you're playing to win and really filling yourself up with those positive sources of gratification. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. One thing that we haven't touched on today, but is sort of the undertone of that has been there and I'm sure that we have spoken about this before is the idea of deferred happiness so you're doing all this work so that eventually you're going to get to a stage where you'll look around you'll be happy with where you are and you'll have the money and you'll have the prestige and you'll have this the outward success and it's just occurred to me as you were talking through that so for me it's now learning about enjoying the journey and enjoying what you're doing on the way and I'm seeing this more and more and more and I see more and more people talking about it and understanding it. So it's not about deferring to I'll be happy when I'll be happy in the future. I'll be uh, happy when this happens, when I get married, when I get promoted, when I uh, get divorced, when I have kids, whatever it might be, you're you're happy now and you're doing stuff that makes you happy now, not saying I'll be happy in the future when X, Y and Z happens. And I think this process can really help people to do that. 
Absolutely. Oh my gosh. This is a whole other podcast it episode, is. but what I will just say on this point is we'll when we back, say to Jordana, ourselves, to talk about yes, please. Or we'll just stop recording and keep talking. But when we say I'll be happy when we're tricking ourselves into believing that when is this fixed and reachable target where in yeah. truth, you know, hedonic adaptation, the hedonic treadmill effect, whenever we get something that we think will increase our happiness, even if it does temporarily, we revert back to our baseline because we acclimate and then we move the goalpost further. And so we need to recognize that there is not a single external achievement that will ever provide us those internal feelings that we crave, but we can create those feelings for ourselves right now by honoring our values and those things that give us give us those deeper sense of meaning, purpose, connection. And if we can't do that for ourselves now, we're never going to be able to do that for ourselves because it's never going to be the external thing. And the steps that are required to cultivate those things are doable really regardless of the context. And so I love, I love that you said that and I, I couldn't agree more. Brilliant, love it. And if people want to connect with you, if they want to find out more about what you do, what is the best place that they can do that? Fabulous. Yeah, my website is jordanaconfino.com and there you can find all my information. Um, my blog, Chronicles of Recovering Type A Plus Perfectionist lives there. And also I'm on LinkedIn, Jordana Confino. And so that's also a great way to reach me. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I absolutely loved this conversation. And I know for anyone who relates to either one of us with that kind of inner drive, the inner perfectionist is really going to relate to what we talked about today and has some really solid steps that they can take then to start addressing that, to take an, you know, an honest look at themselves and start putting some things in place to address to address that for themselves and to be happier now rather than in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this was such a pleasure. So thank you so much for having me on, Ethan. I'm excited to continue this conversation. That was another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in today. And I really hope today's episode resonated with you. If you did enjoy today's episode, I'd love for you to take a couple of minutes or even a couple of seconds to leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. It really does mean the world to me. As always, if you want to connect with me, you'll find all of my links on the website happieratwork.ie. 